2: Unfortunately, this year, unlike the past, I think, four years, I think most, most if not all of the run of this podcast, this night would have been me following along as William & Mary would inev- inevitably lose the CAA final. However, yesterday at 1.30, they actually lost in the semifinals, so this is not our fourth annual William & Mary Memorial losing edition of the filibuster podcast.
0: Yeah, I guess the first year um, we recorded on like a Sunday afternoon, and so we didn't get the the live experience of William and Mary losing while we recorded. Right. So this is this is the other way. William and Mary lost on a Sunday afternoon <laughs> instead yep. of for Monday. So how you feeling, buddy? I'm 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 sorry. Condolences.
2: I mean, they lost by as many basketball points as DC United lost by goals.
0: So that was a close game, but. That just makes it worse probably. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. They were and yeah, they were leading a lot of the game and also That's like okay. DC United.
0: This is a safe space, dude. You can you can let it out.
2: I know. I just someday they will get to the tournament. They've never been yet, but I believe
0: our listeners can't see this single tear rolling down your left cheek right now.
2: Exactly. So, somewhere somewhere a a griffin cries softly. <laughs>
0: Or just weeps openly. Griffins, I think, are ugly criers.
3: That's probably true.
0: <laughs> hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. I'm Adam Taylor, joined as always by the uh, sad to the point of crying Ben Bromley and the tired to the point of crying Jason Anderson. We are all from blackandredunited.com, where you can find us writing about DC United into the wee hours of the morning sometimes. Uh, along with the US national teams, uh, the Washington spirit and lots more. We've got a good show for you tonight. We're going to talk about DC United's MLS season opening loss in Los Angeles. And we're going to preview DC United's upcoming trip to New England with a good friend of the show. Before we do anything though, Jason, I know you're pretty sleepy today, but what are you drinking?
1: Uh, not, uh, an upper. <laughs> not something going to help me out um I have uh an old fashioned uh with um the standard ingredients, but this time I added a couple of raspberries uh as a last second whim um I think uh martin shastro uh has more than once recommended uh blueberries, but I don't have any blueberries, so I tossed a couple of raspberries in uh I don't know if it's gonna make a difference or not, but were, I did it.
2: Were they frozen raspberries and they're kind of acting as ice cubes?
1: No, I had I had ice cubes. Um, they have long since melted. Um, did you muddle the raspberries or just drop them in? I just dropped them in. It was okay. literally <laughs> the last thing I did before I came up. So hopefully <laughs> they'll give me a nice little uh, snack at the end. Um, Boo- but a boozy, a, a boozy fruit is always good. Yeah, um, and it's a uh, Evan Williams single barrel, so it's not. It's not gonna be bad. It'll be a fine drink whether the raspberries make a difference or not.
0: Nice. Uh, regular listeners to the show will know that I've referenced Bell's a few times in the last several weeks. And so tonight I'm actually drinking it. It's every bit as good as I remember it. It's a tasty beer. Ben, what are you drinking tonight?
2: Uh, Going in a similar vein as to Jason uh, in that I'm drinking something very standard with a mild twist. Uh, All I have in my house is bourbon and Coke, so I have a bourbon and Coke. Uh, but I added some splashes of lime juice just to do something different with it. And I, I like the addition of the lime juice. Makes sense. Yeah.
0: Alright, now we, we gotta talk about DC United who let, struck early. Do, let, let, do we? Let me, we do. Let, let,
2: <laughs> let, let, let me finish my drink first.
0: <laughs> Alright, go. Bottoms no, up. No, I'm,
2: I'm not going to do that.
0: you think i won't call your bluff dc united struck early and led at halftime at uh not home depot center stub hub center but fell four to one to the los angeles galaxy when mike mcgee apparently forgot what year it was lamar nagel hit in the fifth minute um and then in the second half mcgee scored twice and assisted on another and drew a penalty like i said that was all in the second half because he didn't start the game. He came on at halftime. Uh, Jason, other than Mike McGee, what's the story of the difference between these two halves? Because it really was a game of two very different halves.
1: Uh, I don't think there's one solid story. I think um, the first thing that comes to mind between the first and second half from United's perspective is that in the first half, they they I, a lot of people are crediting them for good high pressure, and that's not really an accurate way of looking at it. They were really good at selecting when to press and forcing LA into spots where then United could apply real pressure and win the ball back, um, and disrupt. Just how things. the goal came, right? The goal came from that. Um, but it also helped just discombobulate the Galaxy. They were they were not really sure what to do with themselves. Andrew Dykstra wasn't really tested in the first half. Um, Bruce Arena in the halftime interview before the question was even over, um, already had his um mildly irritated answers to hand out before he could then be mildly irritated with his players um and i think that was the main the main thing there um for united was it was everything was working really well la made some changes um united wasn't as effective in their pressure in the second half uh some of the changes included um gerard and DeJong moving closer to uh, the rest of the midfield uh, in the first half they were really deep I think the idea was they wanted to draw uh, United's midfield in rather than let United sit in a, a block of eight and just uh, defend. Um, I think maybe they misread uh, United's intentions on the night, but they adjusted because Bruce Serena is really good at coaching soccer teams and he figured out a solution. Um, he got those guys closer. He that, which gave uh, LA oh, they always had one more option in the second half than they did in the first half. Um, and that's not to say that that, totally changed the game and United was getting overrun. Um the the other side of this was just that LA scored two set piece goals. They were good at finishing the chances they created. And United didn't have very much luck. I mean the score was one one when Nick Dalion hit the post. Um, at 2-1 they had a few chances to equalize. At 1-0 in the first half they had a couple chances to make it 2-0. So um wow. LA's sharpness in the inside the box and their set piece uh, ability. And you can't go to LA and expect to get a result giving up two set piece goals mm-hmm. because you have to assume you're going to give up at least one in the run of play and, or in you know, open play, I should say. And then you, you don't, you don't go to LA and score three goals very often at all. So, um, you put yourself into a terrible position like that. And, uh, that's the story of the game. I mean, if they don't give up the set piece goals, I don't think they lose the game. Um, I think if they can hold off on that, L.A. probably does pick up a goal somewhere, but I don't think it. we end up 4-1. I think we're looking at 1-1 and, and some positives. But as much as it's nice to feel like, oh, we're so close to a positive result, the set-piece goals are going to overwhelm that, in my mind, until United corrects it because you cannot give up two set-piece goals in one game, especially between, uh, to a team that doesn't really have – it's not like they have a ton of targets. This isn't Dom Kinnear's Houston Dynamo. Um, this was a team with one big defender, um, and that's it. I mean, Mike McGee scored a header on a set piece goal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not what should be happening.
0: Well, and the big defender who who scored yes. um had to bend down to head it. It was yes. neither of these were these were good delivery, good service, yeah. but also lost runners. They were markers not doing their jobs. Yep, essentially, and that's almost unforgivable. I think it was Chris Rolfe and Lamar Nagel who missed their marks on the two goals from well, seven I mean, uh,
1: If, if Chris Rolf and or Nagel were marking Dan Steers on the first goal, then something's terribly wrong because yeah. he's six foot four. Um, yeah. I, I think that goal was just an, a systematic breakdown. I think that mm-hmm. people seemed uncertain as to who had who, which is bizarre because yes, LA made one sub, but it was McGee for Dos Santos. It wasn't like they sent in, a bigger player.
0: And McGee was taking that corner.
1: <laughs> right. Um they didn't they didn't change up who had who. It didn't adjust it didn't change anything there. I think LA just did a good job of freeing up runners. Uh Steers made a good hard run into some space. No one got in his way to slow that down. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that as much as anything is what concerns me is what happens before the ball's even in the air. Um if a player of that size gets a good run, everyone is gonna have a hard time marking. It's why Burnbaum is so good. Uh, attacking set pieces because he's really good at finding a way to get going and attack the ball rather than just jump straight up. And in this situation, United just didn't get in his way and slow that rundown. And all of a sudden you saw, um I think it was Boswell was trying to make a play on the ball, but ends up flat on his back. And there was a bunch of chaos going around um Steers and he was running on without really a challenge. And that's mm-hmm. That's something where everyone involved in the box has to do something a little better, I think, at that point.
2: Is this maybe a way that we didn't expect that DC United is missing Bill Hamid? Him organizing mm. all of these players? Or should Boswell really be on top of this to organize everybody?
1: Um, There's only so much you can do. I think it's down to individual players um, being alert and seeing where the run is going to go. uh Figuring out what the intentions of the person you're marking uh, uh is or are and um you know seeing that seeing where la wants to be when the service gets in there not just where they're they are at the start of it but figuring out what the run is going to look like and getting away you know sometimes someone makes a slashing run sometimes we see arcing runs that are a little slower um you've got to be able to figure somebody out and i think there was a lot of not reading the body language correctly on that goal by individual players inside the box i don't think there's much dykstra could do on either set piece goal because the service was so good. Um, McGee's corner was very good. Uh, Gerard's, uh, free kick for the McGee goal was whipped in just above the defense and with power. And, uh, there's a lot of guys crashing the top of the six. There's, if Dykstra comes for that, he's just going to run into somebody and not get the ball and in up possibly injured and concede the goal anyway. So, um, as far as that goes, I don't know that there's much he could do verbally, uh, him or Boswell. It's just players have got to be more alert and getting in the way and, showing the desire to win those battles whether it's winning them as the ball's being struck I mean you can neutralize someone on a set piece before the ball's in the air um by just getting in their way and they don't get going and they never get to where the ball's going to be and they just they aren't a factor um but United did not do that they weren't ready on those set pieces to do that work and that's I think it's not a communication problem as much as just a lack of mental preparedness from a few individuals, and, and not, not I shouldn't say a few, most of the individuals on the field.
0: We talked about Mike McGee coming on at halftime. He wasn't the only halftime sub. Patrick Niarco came off for DC United. We didn't know it at the time, but apparently he was showing some concussion symptoms. Uh, we don't know much more about that. Um, I didn't see him take a knock to the head, but apparently he he may have. And he was pulled out and Fabiano Spindola went on. Lamar Nagel went from forward out to right midfield. Um, ben, Spindola really didn't impress in this one, and he has yet to impress this season through three games. What is wrong with Fabiano Spindola?
2: Um, I mean, like most things, I think it's a combination of different factors. He's another year older. He is. Uh, somewhat of a marked man uh when it comes to dc united teams know that when you play dc united you have to uh neutralize Fabian spindola and the that there are various ways to do that Um and i also think that it may be an issue of chemistry between him and uh lucho acosta and it might be and it looked at least for the first half that Lamar Nagel may be, even though he is a less talented overall soccer player than Fabiana Spindola, he may be a better partner for Acosta than Fabiana Spindola. Uh, I don't doubt that they can; those two can make it work. And if Nyarco is out for a while, they may need to make it work. Uh, but it, it it's interesting that Olson chose Nagel to go with uh, when he had him available.
0: Yeah, we it was a coach's choice is what we heard about benching Espindola for the start of this game. Um, we don't know if it was Olsen taking a gamble on having Nagel to run around up top or or if he was looking for a little less soloing, a little less freelancing by Espindola. Um, but obviously he had to put Espindola uh, on. One question I have, Jason, is whether moving Lamar Nagel out to the wing uh in place of Patty Niarco contributed to some of the defensive failings, especially on Mike McGee's first goal when we, we saw the entire defensive shape get sucked over to the left side of the defense only for Sebastian Legette to flick the ball over to, to his left. And Mike McGee is just there all by himself, the only person basically on that half of the field. And Lamar Nagel was just nowhere to be seen. Um, whether he should have tracked back or or Sean Franklin should have stayed wider, I don't know whose role it was, but um, I, I I do think there's a chance Patrick Niargo would have come a little deeper and might have been in position to play there. Obviously, that's a counterfactual I can't say for sure, but do you think Nagel moving wide had something to do with that?
1: Uh, it might have a little bit. Um, in that scenario, though, the rest of the team has to adjust. If, if Nagel isn't back there, um, you need somebody else from central midfield dropping on the, on the goal. Franklin is marking someone that was in the middle. Um, and then McGee is floating beyond him and he's the, the furthest man away and no, no one's got him. Um, in that situation, somebody from the center of midfield, um, needs to look up and see that that's, that this is the situation and needs to call Franklin off and go mark Franklin's man. So Franklin can start to slide back on McGee because the way that goal went down if McGee McGee didn't need to be tightly marked to not have that play work out. He just needed mm-hmm. somebody near enough to him to stop him at all. Um, if Franklin was in five feet of of or five yards of McGee, he probably closes him down to the point that McGee can't really convert the the chance that ended up occurring um so i I think i'm I'm more concerned with the lack of shape from everyone involved. Um, the lack of flexibility, the lack of awareness as, you know, the shape was, was pretty bad for in that moment. Yeah. And I think someone in the midfield, whether it's just Nagel getting there to mark McGee or whether it's someone in central midfield seeing the disaster coming ahead of time and calling people off and changing things so that Franklin can be getting over to McGee as that ball's coming across. Something in there's got to change. Um, it would be nice if Dykstra had been able to call something out there. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think there was a team-wide, or maybe not team-wide, not everyone is in, in on that goal, but a lot of players down the spine of the team. Um, it was a
0: systemic failure, not yeah, a yeah. mistake by one player.
1: Right. Um, and uh, I, I don't necessarily, I think Nagel did so much in this game that it's hard to not keep him in the lineup for somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody else that we expected to be a starter is going to get dropped going forward, whether it's um, a because as Ben talked about, he and Acosta might not have, it, it might be a long time before they get the right chemistry in place because they both kind of want to do the same stuff. Um, and a hasn't pl- been playing well. He doesn't really seem to get that. He needs to take a role in the group rather than be the star of the show. Um, he seems to think that he's got to do everything right now. He's got to play the, He's got to make the assist and he's got to score the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and with this team, the way it's set up, he doesn't have to do that. And when he's running around everywhere, but where he needs to be, he's not, he's not doing anything. He's actually reducing his impact on the game and getting in the way of everyone else. Um, Nagel plays a simpler game. And I think crucially, he gives some vertical space as a forward to Acosta because he's actually trying to lead the line. A never tries to lead the line. Um, and Acosta needs somebody to do that because he needs somebody to expand the field a little bit so that he's got room to do what he's going to do. Um, Nagel isn't necessarily an ideal lone striker, but he's closer to what is needed in this scenario. Uh, than a, than uh, a spindle is and a spindle can adapt, but he's got to actually want to adapt. And yeah. I don't know that he necessarily wants to do that. Um, but then again, you know, we just talked about Niarco Maybe he's going to be out for a while. Um, we have no idea. Concussion symptoms can clear up in a couple of days or they can clear up in months or never. Um, so we don't know how long that's going to take to sort itself out. Um, if he's out for this coming game against New England, then I would just expect Nagel to play on the wing. And that's that, um, Seattle never really had a problem with Niarcho's defensive or Nagel's defensive play, um, as a winger. So I'm, I'm not too hung up on that. Um, but may, you know, Niarco could also Nagel could also push uh Rolf out um on the left because Rolf had moments in this game but I don't think you could say he was better than Nagel even if you take the goal out of it mm-hmm. um yeah. so someone someone in the attack is going to lose their spot it's not going to be Acosta um to Nagel I think I think that has to happen and I think right now the the person with the weakest argument to stay in is going to be a spindle because of what Nagel provides for the other players around him. And the fact that he's not trying to be uh, the only player on the field when United goes forward. He's just trying to help the group. Um, and that's what this team needs at this point.
0: So one worry I have about Lucho Acosta, and right now it is basically the only worry because he has been really good when he's been on the field, but he has yet to go 90 minutes. I know... Last week against Carretero, he uh, came on as a sub because he had flown to Argentina and gotten back to D.C. two days before the game. And you don't really want to risk injury. And I wonder whether it's that unwillingness to risk injury that's the reason why Olsen has pulled him in the other two games that, that Lucho has started, including yesterday. Um Ben, do you think I, – I mean, this is pure speculation, I guess, on our part, but uh, do you think it's a fitness thing? Do you think Olsen just wants to get a different look in? Do you think there's going to be a point in time soon when Acosta can go 90 minutes?
2: Uh, to answer the second part first, yes, I do think soon Acosta will be going 90 minutes. Uh, I think in this game, uh, it might have been a little bit of uh, fitness, but it also might have been uh, at that point, the team needed a different look uh and I think also Olsen wants to give Julian Bucher some minutes. I think he likes Julian Bucher a lot and wants to get him on the field uh as many in as many ways as he can. so I think Buescher's position and his his coming may not necessarily totally be in the attacking midfield i I might like to see him in other positions, but I think
0: I know I certainly would
2: yes, I, but I think that combination and the fact that it's still early in the season, he wasn't getting he had been on loan, he wasn't getting much time at Boca Juniors, all of that combined, he had a short preseason, all of that means that
0: yeah that's true.
2: uh I think he's going to go ninety minutes sometime soon, uh definitely, but i don't I don't think it's quite yet.
0: I mentioned earlier that Patrick Nyarko came off at halftime with concussion syndromes or not syndrome, sorry, con- concussion symptoms. Um, the player everyone was talking about with regards to head injuries, though, was Steve Birnbaum, who had two clashes of heads with Galaxy players, the second of which left him on the ground for an extended period of time as the trainers treated a gash apparently on his forehead. He came off. I don't know whether he went through concussion protocols, the the official tests they do. Um, but he was off for quite a while before he came back on. You, you um, would think there
2: would have at least been enough time for them to do it, unlike how many head injuries are often treated. Yeah,
0: this was not one where he was obviously dazed and out of it. Um, and he didn't just he, immediately
2: he, come back on.
0: Right, and he didn't immediately come back on. Um, i 'd like to give the benefit of the doubt to the training staff. um we have no reason to think they they rushed him on or or did anything untoward or outside of the protocols here um that said, there were a lot of people, Jason calling for Birnbaum to have a seat and for Kofi Opari to go in for him um just seeing that he had had two clashes of heads i I don't know how I want to frame this question because none of us are doctors here. We don't really have room to prognosticate here. I guess that's kind of my point is most of us on the Internet are not doctors. And right. there was a lot of diagnosis happening online yes. last and, night.
1: And the it's it's an understandable instinct for people to say Burnbaum missed about three minutes before uh, after the first clash of heads plays about five ten minutes. I think I've got this in my notes. Um, yeah, 5 minutes, and then is down again, and United ended up playing with 10 men, ten men for two different 3-minute spans um, uh, with him on the sideline. Um, it's admirable that people's first thought is, okay, this is a guy that needs to come out. Um, yeah, that's progress
0: over what it used to be. where it right, was sort of it considered, considered weakness. Like,
1: well, it's just your head. Just rub some dirt on your head. Yeah, you'll be, you'll be all right. Uh, you walk this one off. Um, but the fact is, we don't know when the trainers come in to see Burnbaum. We don't know what they're seeing. We don't know what they know they're even looking for. Um, if they come in and Burnbaum isn't showing any signs of a concussion, then you don't, you know, if you come in and a guy is holding his ankle, you don't treat his knee. Um, it's the similar thing. If a guy isn't showing you the signs of a concussion, you're not necessarily going to go through the steps. And on the second the second one where the gash came in, he was holding his head and like like whipping his arm around in pain. Like he looked like someone who was hurt, not concussed, but like concerned about something uh that hurts sharply rather than like, oh my my head really he wasn't holding his head and that was it. He was, you know, in acute pain very quickly. Um and I assume the training staff obvious I mean, we saw the tape job, so we know that there was some sort of bleeding spot. Um, somewhere on his head. Um, I'm assuming they saw that, and I'm going to assume that because they're professional trainers for a team that has lost too many players to concussion, uh, and forced retirement, that they also were concerned about the concussion possibility and were trying to make sure that that wasn't the issue. Um, you can get hit in the head pretty hard and not get a concussion. Um. And you can
0: also get hit in the head, not very hard, right. and exactly. get a concussion.
1: Um, it's... I mean Brian Namoff. One of Brian Namoff's main concussions came from getting uh, hit with a ball, and apparently not all that hard. It was sort of a surprise, according to um the stories that have come out from that. It was a training session. It wasn't even uh during a real game. So concussions are very mysterious. We don't know a lot about them. It's good that people are thinking. Yeah, in the about Burnbaum's uh long term future. But I, I like you said, you use the phrase benefit of the doubt. I think we should assume that United's training staff at this point is, if anything, more cautious about concussions than anyone else is going to be on the Internet. Right. And
0: and hopefully it doesn't come down to that training staff being proven wrong by complications down the road. At that point, absolutely excoriate them for getting right. Then off, we we have food.
1: some serious questions about and, what's going on, not just for the trainers, but. Within the coaching staff. Yeah. Until um, that happens, though. Right. Let's let's have I, some evidence before we start demanding. Yeah, exactly. Radio. The, the for instinct, people that are experts on things we don't know about. Yeah. The uh, instinct
0: to be safety were safety first is absolutely laudable. Let's not then take the next step, though, to excoriating people for not uh, who, who have more information than we do right. for not taking the extreme conservative approach, which does make some sense, but is not the only course of action. Uh, back to the play on the field. Ben, on the overall, what are you taking away from from this first MLS match?
2: I mean, I am, despite my better senses, I am clinging to the first 50-55 minutes of the game, but especially the first half, uh, and just how much different United looked than especially the end of last year. This is not same old DC United. This is not a team playing the same style as last year. Uh, They had so many more shots and shots on goal in this game than they did in whole stretches of uh, the season last year. So that is encouraging. Obviously, the defensive fragility is concerning, but I think... Ben Olsen can put together a good defense, and the fact that they're getting this many shots on goal already is something to be enthused about.
0: Yeah, this is not a team that's going to have a one-shot, one-kill kind of uh, game like we had in Montreal last year. This team is, while it, it still defended for long stretches, they you know didn't have a lot of the ball even in the first half. They still were very direct when they did have the ball and they didn't let la do anything when when they had the ball in the first half in in a lot of ways we've talked in the past about what benny ball is supposed to be and one of those things was being pragmatic and being able to control the game even when you don't have the ball and that's kind of what we saw in the first half the second half obviously it's not um Ben has to be able to Benny has to be able to make in-game adjustments to fix it when it's not working. Uh, but in the first half, we did see something really encouraging. I thought, um, and and hopefully we turn that one good half into two good halves in New England next weekend. Jason, how about you?
1: Well, I'm glad you brought up the word direct um, because there's different ways to be direct, and I think last year the accusation against United, especially once. Um, the season was starting to go into a tailspin and Saburillo was starting to become the target of more and more long balls um, capped off with the pretty miserable experience of the uh, knockout rounds against uh, the Red Bulls in the playoffs. Um, That's one way to be direct is to go long from your, from deep positions over through the air to Saburillo and just hope for the best. Um, United is direct in a different way. um, This thus far this year, and they're direct on the ground. Um, they're trying to get through the midfield to the attacking players quickly. They want to find Acosta. They want to find, um, in this game, they wanted to find Nagel, um, Rolf, niarco, Not as much, but they still do want to get those guys involved. Um, Nick DeLeon was was heavily involved in this game, which I think yeah. is a big... Sorry,
0: I'm going to interrupt you there. We need to talk a little bit more about Nick DeLeon, I think, All before right. we, we go to the break. Because he was really good yes. for a long this stretch was, in this game.
1: This was, I think, the game that Ben Olsen has envisioned in moving him into the middle. This is the kind of play that he envisioned from DeLeon, where DeLeon's a bit... We we sort of lamented the fact that that as a wide player, he didn't have top-line speed, but his first three or four steps are really fast. He gets up to his top speed almost immediately, and that's a great gift. That's a great way to uh, deceive people because they think, well, he's not that fast, so I don't have to worry about it, but he's gone by the time he gets to that third or fourth set. He's already passed you. Um, he's also very physically strong, so he can burst past people that are trying to challenge him. He can ride those challenges and get through them. Um, so we saw him leading some breaks out of the midfield, um, bursting into the penalty area a little more, um, a little more confident in what he was doing. I think he's just gaining a lot of comfort in in the job and, and as a partner to Marcelo Sarvas. And I think we saw a lot of, a lot of improvement between the game Tuesday against Carretero and this game. Um, even though against Carretero, the score is 1-1 and and L.A. won by 3, um, De Leon showed some big progress. Um, and enough to the point that, you know, after Buescher scored, I think, you know, another sort of confused sort of growing into the role game uh, from De Leon uh, in L.A., we might have heard a stronger drum beat for mm-hmm. Bucher to take over as the number eight uh, alongside Sarvas. De Leon really, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a statement game for him, but it's close to it. Um, this is what he's supposed to be doing in this role. Um, and I think it's, it bodes well for United because he was able to provide a lot of some of the, some of the things that Davey Arnaud used to provide. Um, but he's better with the ball at his feet. His technique is better. His first touch is better. Um, he's able to cover more ground. Um, uh at, at least on offense. On defense I don't think he covers as much ground as Arnaud because I don't think there are too many players in the league that did that. Um but going forward he's much more mobile and much more able to take those risks without giving up too much defensively. So um I think it was a, a big outing for him. As much as Nagel might have gained and you know opened a lot of eyes, I think De Leon actually was the player who took the biggest leap forward. Um and that's great because United needs somebody in central midfield that can make that burst. And if Sarvas has to be the six in this formation, then it's got to be De Leon. And he's got to the, – the, the important thing for him going forward is that this isn't an exception. This has to be what we see on a regular basis from him. Um. So against New England, against Colorado, we want to see more of what we saw from De Leon in L.A.,
0: yeah, sorry, I, I did interrupt you to to take that. So Jason, no. any final thoughts before we on this game, before we, we bring uh, in our guest?
1: Um, I'm gonna say that, that you know, the first half was good, but you've got to string together ninety minutes, and this team has had a problem with that uh pretty consistently over the past I, I guess year and a half. Um yeah,
0: it was nice to score in the first five minutes in the first half, but to yes, allow a goal in the same time frame in the second right. half was, was not so it encouraging.
1: Was, it was especially nice to score in the first five minutes uh, the day after I went through and counted the number of times we gave up a goal in the first mm-hmm. five minutes, and it just ruined by night. Um, <laughs> it was very pleasant. Uh, it's something that – and and I want to underline one of the reasons Arena was so irritated at halftime that was the first thing out of his mouth was mm-hmm. giving, you know, the, the guy, the sideline guy asked him something about what do you have to change to improve in the second half? And he didn't want to talk about things to change, to improve in the second half. He wanted to talk about his sheer irritation and disdain for conceding a goal in the first five minutes. Um And that is what that's, it's that costly. It's that irritating. It, you know, arena has every right to be that upset and any coach would be that upset. Um But going back to the, the overall, you know, what do you take away from this game? You've got to defend set pieces better. The first half was really nice. And I don't think they were that bad in the second half. I really don't think if you played this game 100 times, this might be the best outcome the Galaxy get. I don't think they score four goals in 45 minutes, maybe once or twice in, in if you played this 100 game, times in some sort of um, infinite simulator on a, I don't know, a hypothetical. Um, this was, this was, it was bad luck. And LA also getting it together really well. Um, But United could have done a lot more set piece wise to keep themselves. Like I said before, I don't think they lose the game if they don't give up these set piece goals. I, I don't think LA gets two, they get one and that's it.
0: All right. It's time for us to take a break and we will be right back with Steve store from the dot to help us preview DC United's trip to new England this weekend. Stick around. This is filibuster, the black and red United podcast. Well, it's a it's a new season here in D.C. for D.C. United and for us here at Filibuster as we enter season number five of the podcast. Yay, us. Happy birthday, us. Uh, we want to take time to record a new message from our sponsor, the Ehrlich Law Office. They provide discrimination, wage and litigation solutions for those of us living in Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. Sorry, Jason, you're out of luck. I, I guess I'm doomed. You you are doomed. Um, <laughs> th- this message goes to people in Nova and D.C. Your rights matter. You deserve to be free from harassment and you deserve to work. Um,
2: Marylanders deserve none of that.
0: I, I wouldn't go that far, Ben, but, well, but we'll people in Nova way, and people in Northern Virginia and D.C. that now. definitely applies to you. I can't speak to whether it applies in Maryland. Uh, if you th- have suffered from workplace discrimination or wage theft, uh, you're, you're dealing with some non-competition or non-solicitation litigation, your civil rights have been violated, uh, or there's been illegal taking by the government, or you have uh, disability issues, or you have uh, a complaint in education law, then the Ehrlich Law Office is who you should talk to. They're good friends of the show. Uh, I I know the the lawyers there personally they are really good at their jobs and they're really good people uh, and you should check them out for a free consultation go to com slash filibuster welcome back to filibuster the black and red united podcast we are joined now by steve store from the dot Uh, who will help us preview D.C. United's attempt to rebound from that loss in California on the turf of Gillette Stadium against the New England Revolution. That game will go down Saturday at 3 p.m. in D.C. and the environs. It will be on News Channel 8. Steve, how's it going? Not bad. How are you guys tonight? We're doing well. Doing well. All things considered.
1: Speak for yourself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Steve, you you know how we do it here. What are you drinking tonight?
3: Uh, I have a Stone uh, Guacaveza. It's Mexican chocolate stout. And um, some of that Kirkland scotch that you get at Costco. Excellent.
0: That sounds like a a nice Monday
3: night. It is. (laughs) It is. is. It's the Monday night that I deserve.
2: (laughs) Also, a PSA for people. Stone Richmond is now open. So come to Richmond and get your Stone beer.
0: Stone no longer exclusive to California, and you know if Stone Brewery wants to sponsor the podcast, we will certainly accept <laughs> their money to continue. Or just their beer if they just, free, send, if they just like want to. If they just want to send
2: us beer, we'll just take their beer.
0: <laughs> we take. <laughs> we'll we are shameless
1: for booze. We can, we can drink. We could drink a sponsorship worth of beer. <laughs> really <could. laughs>
0: So, Steve, your your Revs started the year yesterday with a dramatic stoppage time draw down in Houston, a 3-3 three to three thriller. Um, other than it being, you know, a Monday night, how, do you, how are you feeling about
3: that game? Well, going into it, I thought that a road draw would be a good result. Uh, the Revs, in the last few years, they haven't done a great job. Uh, in the opening game of the season, uh, we've had some, particularly against the Dynamo two years ago, I believe, uh, two or three years ago, the Dynamo beat us 4-0 or 4-1 in the first game of the season. So it, it's been a trap game in a lot of ways in a lot of, for the last couple of years. So I'm glad to have come out with a point, going into it, I wanted a point. It just felt, after watching the entire game, it felt great to get that point at the death like that. But then analyzing the game itself, there were a lot of things to be worried about. Um, I do think a lot of it comes down to first game, working the kinks out, um, you know, getting into the, the season rhythm. So I can't you can't take too much from it. Um, but I was a little concerned with some lackadaisical defending. Uh, two of the three Dynamo goals in particular were just just soft defending, and another one was miscommunication with the keeper. And then, apart from Diego Fagundes, who was fantastic all night, there wasn't a lot of. I didn't sense a lot of killer instinct in the attack, and that's worrisome because you kind of you need the Rev- the revs are a team that need to score goals because it seems like they're not going to stop them with any regularity, uh, which is fine. I don't mind being an offensive team. It's, it's it's you have to be offensive enough to overcome any defensive frailties. So it, it was nice. I mean, it was exciting. It was a good start to the season. Great, you know, endorsement for the casual, but there there, there were still things to be worried about.
0: So you mentioned Diego Fagundes, who who did have himself a game, got himself uh, a goal of the week nominee. In fact, uh, is this the year he really makes the jump? I mean, he he came on as a rookie and and kind of took the league by storm, and then fizzled a little bit. Uh, you know, he was never he's never disappeared or been a bad player, but he he kind of plateaued. Is this the year that his growth curve resumes? Do you think?
3: Well, the scary thing is, you know, you say he came on as a rookie; that was his third year as a pro. He made his debut in 2011 and then played the full season in 2012 before really coming on in 2013. Uh, and it's funny to think you'd think that he, him as a rookie because he's 21 years old and right. been around this, you'd never expect him to have been around this long. But he got signed when he was 15. Um, it's tough to say because I mean you, got, you really gotta assume that 2013 was his breakout year because it was. But he just hasn't looked necessarily the same since then, and I'm not sure that's a bad thing because in 2013 he was so dangerous he was so crafty but he was he played no defense you know and a lot of what helped us in 2012 helped the revs in 2012 or 2013 rather was uh your old friend Clyde Sims and later Clyde bringing on and mentoring Scott Caldwell they played the, the revs played a little bit of a different system they had the four, you know they had the basically the Macalley right in front of the back line right. Sims or Caldwell later who was really able to keep the defense kind of free of any any real difficulties, and it'll let the guys in front just shine. And Diego was definitely the greatest beneficiary of that. The Diego you see now, I think, is more of a team player. He gets involved in both sides of the ball. He tracks back pretty well. He's aggressive on defense. And I think he's got better vision. I think he understands that he had a go-to move in 2013 that worked, um, and they people figured it out by 2014. And uh, I think it took him a little while to realize that he was figured out and judging by the way he played uh yesterday i think he's realized that he needs to get a couple of other tricks up his sleeve because he definitely i mean the goal he scored was he scored a goal like that last year and that's kind of a goal that almost anyone i mean i won't say anyone can score because that was ridiculous but it's a type of goal that's oh i'm going to settle this ball and rip a volley it's not something that it's not a it's not a consistent move whereas his cutting inside and his right across the top of the box is his consistent move and always has been but he, you know, he set up the third goal, the, the equalizing goal, by driving to the byline and playing in a cross. That's something you never used to see him do. And he has a great foot; he can play across. He can pick a shot, and he, he never used to do that. Shooting from distance now is a new tool in his kit. And I think you're going to start to see him mature into the player that he's going to be. I don't know if that means breaking out, scoring double-digit goals again. I don't know if that means being more creative, or if it just means being a seven and seven guy, which the league could never get enough of, really um but yeah. i think we're going to see this year we're going to get an idea of what kind of player he actually is going to be
0: let's talk about a guy who's no longer with the revs and that's Jermaine Jones uh kind of the story of the off season i think for people who don't follow the revs was the Jermaine Jones saga the the six game suspension obviously weighing over him uh that's no longer your problem that's now uh colorado <laughs> rapids problem
3: that was a scotch question mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Pretty good, huh? Oh yeah, it's great. <laughs> so he went to the ra- or to the Rapids in exchange for uh, their natural first round pick next year, which could be a pretty good pick, and some general allocation money. um How do you feel about the trade, and and how do you feel about the the Jermaine Jones sized hole in your field and your heart?
3: Well, uh, I mean, about the trade, uh, there's a lot of ways you can attack this. I mean, from pure fan standpoint. Regardless of the belly aching he did this off season, how can you be happy he's gone? I mean, he wore his heart in his sleeve. He was passionate. He was a good captain. Notwithstanding, you know, the game against DC in the playoffs last season when he lost his mind. I mean, it's never right to put your hands on the referee, but I'm not going to say he didn't have a point. Um, but it's still he he was he was so he was so emotionally important to the club and on to the, on the field performance. I mean, just look at 2014. Mm-hmm. You, know, you look at the record with him on the field, the Rebs were 27 and seven. And yes, a lot of the seven and seven happened in 2015, which was not a, not a great year for him, but they were still better when he was playing in midfield and he was on the pitch. You can't, you can't replace that. I mean, I was talking about that in Slack with a couple of the other guys in the bat musket last night, you know, you, you, the, uh Teal Bumbury was kind of hanging off the shoulder of the left back a lot last night. And Houston was playing kind of a high line and the Revs were drawing them in. Jones would have noticed that from the left side of the field, from the opposite side of the field in his own half, and launched a cross-field pinpoint aerial ball that Teal would have run onto and immediately would have been a scoring chance. It happened countless times in 2014, a couple times in 2015. You lose that. You lose that presence, that physical presence, the creativity in midfield. But, and you can't really ever fill that hole. Gershon is going to be great, I think. I think he's he was great in Vancouver. He's a little inconsistent, but I think he's really, really good for this level. I think he's going to be fine. Scott Caldwell, you heard it here first from a homer. He's going to be one of the best defensive midfielders in MLS, either this season or next season. I think he was already in the top five conversation last year. And his game, you know, those two and anybody else, Kowasi next year, the refs are going to be fine. But on the field, you're never on the field and off the field. You're just never going to replace Jermaine Jones. How could you? You know, I mean, honestly, it's it's it that you how could you? You just can't. It's like replacing I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to be too grandiose, but it's like replacing Landon Donovan. Is LA really going to replace him? No, are they going to be fine? Yes, but are they ever going to replace that guy? No, that's sort of that's kind of what he was to New England. So I guess that would be the long winded answer for the uh, actual from the fan in me.
0: Right. Well, what what L.A. did when they had to replace Landon Donovan, and what D.C. is doing, having to replace Perry Kitchen, Davy Arnault in the central in the center of midfield is right. kind of go in a different direction, not try to replace him like for like. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Gershon Kofi. What other moves did New England make uh, this offseason? And are they trying to fill that Jermaine Jones hole with a Jermaine Jones stand in or are they trying to kind of tweak it a little bit and go with a different angle?
3: Well, it doesn't look like they're really changing their system so much, Uh which I think is good. I think this is a team that's built for the high press and the counter, Um and the more that they embrace that, the better. That said, they've always kind of run, since 2014 now, they've run basically a double pivot behind Lee Wynn in midfield, so two defensive midfielders. With Jermaine, Jermaine was the one who ranged forward. Scott Caldwell stayed home. Jermaine did whatever the hell he wanted to do, and it didn't matter because he just has that kind of a soccer brain and that talent that you just let him do what he wants, which I think Scott is such a disciplined player that he can do that, and that's fine. But I think it all just wastes Scott Caldwell's talent. So the upside to losing Jermaine Jones is that you bring in a guy like a Gershon Kofi or a Xavier Kwasi, who is the guy, the DP that we signed to promptly split his knee into 50 million pieces um, right after signing with us, um, the guy who's probably going to be more of a stay-at-home defensive midfielder and it's going to let Scott Caldwell move forward. Scott Caldwell was an attacker in college. He has a great soccer brain. He has um you know amazing vision, a really good passer. It's better when he's further up the pitch. We saw that a little bit last season when without Jones in the lineup or with Jones playing defense, Scott Caldwell picked up two goals for assists. I mean, he he really kind of came into his own. So I think that the strategy going forward is going to be let Scotty take some of the 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 germane role and then let him work with whoever else is in midfield with him to sort of split those duties. And instead of having one stay at home midfielder and one ranging midfielder have two midfielders who are good at both, which I honestly, I think makes for a more balanced attack because when you're letting, when you're giving one to do one thing and one to the other, it becomes tough to replace one or the other. If something happens.
1: Uh, Steve, I'll go to uh, the defensive end of things first. Um, I think the Rebs were trying to, to solve a, a problem at right back. Um, they drafted uh, Jordan McCrary, but then Javon Watson kind of falls into their lap right near the end of the preseason, essentially. Um, and then I, I mean, he was only signed for a few days before he got the start uh, against Houston. Um, what did you think of his debut? And do you think he's going to lock down right back? Or do you think that uh, the Rebs still want to develop McCrary to challenge him?
3: Uh, I thought he had a great debut. Um, I thought he, I actually didn't expect him to start. I'll be honest with you. Um, I thought Darius Barnes was going to start right back. Keep, you know, the experience, uh, steady hand. He's been there before. Uh, but they, I mean, they put Javon Watson there. I think the Javon Watson move was a fantastic move because if there was one thing that was wrong with the revolution in 2015, it was a complete, it was lack of defensive depth. Darius Barnes blows his knee out a couple weeks into the season, and all of a sudden, you're forced to put Jermaine Jones in at center back whenever anyone needs a rest. Because they had plenty of people who could play right back, but no one who could play center back. And Javon Watson can play both. He's played right, he's played center, he's played left, he's played midfield. I mean, he creates a level of versatility and depth in the back. And he's MLS starter caliber. I mean, is he... MLS starter caliber championship team, you know, gonna light up the league at right back? Probably not, but I think he had a great debut. He, he was he defended well, he passed well, he had good instincts in the attack, had a couple decent couple decent moves, but he he basically gave us anything we could have wanted out of him. Um as far as McCrary goes, he's the guy of the future, I think, at this point. That's what the club thinks. Uh, if he doesn't develop, I mean that's obviously that's a risk you take, but I think you're gonna see McCrary plenty this season, sure. Um, if not for another reason, that you're going to see Javon Watson all over the field whenever someone needs a rest. So I think McCrary, you're, he's he's going to become the right back of the future if he can stay healthy and he can develop. But bringing in Javon Watson, I thought was a master. It was one of the better moves of the offseason. Between bringing in Watson and Kofi, I thought those were the moves that, to me, were successes in this offseason. Because Watson, for at least the first part of the season, is going to give you that steady hand a natural sort of more of a natural right back than say a Darius Barnes who can let McCrary come through and develop and learn the ropes as a professional before he starts to get more time and once McCrary does if he does eventually take the the job from him this season you have Watson able to play almost anywhere else that you could possibly need the help honestly looking at the defense this year I feel a lot more confident because there's just they, they're better equipped to handle injury and and, and fatigue and I think in this league, especially when you get over the summer and the fixture congestion gets bad, you need to be able to plug some bodies in that aren't just going to be, you know, just go out there and I'm going to close my eyes and pray that you don't, you know, completely screw up, which I think happened a couple of times last year. I mean, it, it, by, by necessity, in situations where it really shouldn't have had to happen. So I thought Watson was very good and I think he's going to continue to be very good. But McCrary is definitely the right back of the future at this point
1: um you mentioned Barnes and and when he got injured that was uh just to give our fans a some perspective that was basically the entire depth for the the Revs across multiple defensive positions when he got injured it was like it was gone um but i guess to to, to move elsewhere on the field um i was really a little surprised to see Kellen Rowe uh starting in central midfield against a team that plays uh with with Houston playing Chaco Maidana uh as a number 10 um I thought it was a, a really super high-risk move by Jay Heaps to to play Kofi and Rowe in the engine room rather than bringing in Caldwell. Um, but Heaps has loved a rotation with his talented midfield. He's never said, these are my five guys and these are the backups. Um, do you think that's going to carry on through the season, or do you think that guys like Caldwell and Fagundes are going to win a, a job full-time and maybe reduce the amount of uh, rotation that happens through the season?
3: I really hope it doesn't continue. I don't want to see Scott Caldwell play a deep lying midfield position ever again. Scott is incredibly talented. Not, sorry, not Scott Caldwell. Kellen Rowe. Sorry. Um, Kellen is incredibly talented, but he's not a defensive midfielder. I would argue he's not even a defense first box to box midfielder. He's an advanced attacker, a slasher, a guy who will run between the boxes, but his focus needs to be, I want to get on the ball and score or I want to play a killer pass. And you talk about his vision as a passer. He has great vision as an attacking passer, but the kind of balls that he attempts, if he's playing in deep midfield, he's attempting killer balls that are more often than not going to be intercepted in his own half. That's you can't do that. You just can't do that. That's way you, you said it yourself. It's way too much of a risk against Maidana. Yeah, you can have Kofi try to key on Maidana and let Rowe kind of do his thing, but Roe doesn't have the positional sense when he's that deep. It's just not his position. And at this point, it's his fifth year as a pro, we know what he is. He works best when he is kind of a late running, slashing attacking midfielder focused on goal scoring. It doesn't really fit in the system that the Revs play right now. But he also he can he can do a job at, at winger as well as an advanced wing forward or a little out wide. So you kind of work with trying to get him in those positions where you make him successful. Putting him in defensive midfield, to me, in the center of midfield, that didn't make any sense. Uh, we were talking about it before the game started, and I, I just I couldn't – I felt like heaps was getting in his own head. Either Caldwell was hurt and we didn't know about it, or Jay was – he outcoached himself a little bit because the Scott Caldwell was last year's most consistent performer, voted team MVP. I mean, coming into this season, he's an automatic name on the team sheet. I mean, I, I Jay Heaps would tell you that there's no automatic names. He does like to rotate players sometimes, but I think he's always been looking for a consistent set of people, set of players that, you know, are going to be his go-tos and how Scott Caldwell could not be one of those players right now after, you know, 2013 when he came on strong, 2014 when he, you know, made the game his own essentially. And last year when he was sometimes the best player on the pitch, how can he not be? An automatic name on the team sheet. I mean, you got to you got to be thinking to yourself: Lee Win, Jose Gonzalez, Scott Caldwell.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: or maybe Scott before Jose. I mean, honestly, yeah. it, I don't understand how it, it was. It was baffling. And I think if you watch the first half of that match when Kellen was in the middle, it bore out. The Revs yeah. scored. They played well for the first ten minutes, and then you were missing that guy who takes up the best positions, who intercepts the passes, who picks up the loose balls, who plays the simple passes and the daring passes but is tidy with the ball. And as soon as Scott Caldwell came in in the second half, although Houston scored, I thought the Revs' connections in midfield were just so much tighter, so much smoother. It was night and day. So I hope to God that we don't see that ever again. But who knows?
1: So this is your way of saying that, for for our listeners at least, that uh, Caldwell being inexplicably left out would be a great surprise and, and everyone should celebrate.
3: It would be terrific. If you see that, you should turn, if you find, <laughs> see that in the lineups before the game, you should find a sports book that has DC winning and you should <laughs> immediately put money on them. Um, but, I mean, I will say this. Kellen Rowe is, can be a frustrating player because he's, he's inconsistent at times. Like many players in the Revs, it almost seems like it's prerequisite to play for the Revs. He's very streaky. But when he's on, you could put him at goalkeeper, and he's going to score on you from thirty yards out, and he's going to destroy <laughs> you. So, putting him in central midfield, I don't think maximizes his talents in deep central midfield. But that doesn't mean that his talents won't necessarily come to the front, you know, on any given Saturday. So, if Kellen Rowe is on the pitch, there's something you should be afraid of. But if he's on the pitch next to Gershon Kofi or next to somebody in a deep position, you can be less afraid.
2: So, Steve, my my one question is about uh, is about off the field uh, things. Uh, the Revs, almost as much as uh, similarly to DC United, know the pains of uh, trying to find a new stadium, and we we both joined the bottom of Grant Walls' ambition rankings that were recently published. Uh,
3: We've been down there for a while. It's fun.
0: We have parties.
2: Yeah, 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 exactly. True.
0: Yeah. I mean, we would have parties, but... We can't eh, afford parties. No, we can't <laughs> afford it, and, and that's a lot of work. Like, it takes oh. ambition to host a good party, and yeah.
2: So, eh. just for for our oh. listeners who don't follow the Revs off-field situation that much, wh- is there any chance of them moving out of uh, Gillette Stadium anytime soon? Do the crafts care? It-
3: the second question is a large question. <laughs> <laughs> How much the first question? We have? That's fair. The first question, no. <laughs> no, I think Jonathan Kraft came out and said that he committed to being in a soccer-specific stadium before 2025. So, <laughs> I mean, now keep in mind, by the way, that in 2005 he committed to breaking ground within two years. So, twenty years after his first bold statement, he's hoping to be in a uh, soccer-specific stadium in the city of Boston. He's committed.
0: It's a really long MTA. construction timeline. A lot of yeah. lead up to that timeline.
3: Well, I mean, pl- apparently, he's planning on using Massachusetts state workers to build it because that's that's the only per- people I can think of would take that long to build something.
0: I mean, it's going to but- be an underground stadium. It's going to be. The Big Dig Stadium is yeah. Let's get pulled
3: in the Ted Williams Tunnel. It makes sense. It's just going to be somewhere <laughs> down there
1: where they started digging. and were like, uh, we don't know what we're doing. This was a. It turns out a huge mistake. There's just <laughs> an empty gap somewhere down there, and that's where they'll play. Let's, let's stick a
3: stadium there. Um,
1: Never have to worry about it. Right of, now. There was
3: a lot of uh, there was a lot of talk about it last at some point last season. But the unfortunate thing about this and the front office, the guys in the front office and the business office will tell you that this is just kind of the way the news cycle works and this is why it happens, but it's sad. You get the news about them poking and prodding, looking for a spot, you know, around the same times every year. One of those times is when season ticket renewals are coming up. Yeah. It's calculated. I mean it's obvious that it's calculated. They'll never admit that and that's fine. It's a marketing tactic. I'm no, I don't think that they're I don't think that they don't want to be in a soccer specific stadium. I think that Brian Bolello really wants to be in a soccer specific stadium. I think that even Jonathan Kraft, I think the revs are kind of his baby and he wants to be able to do something with them. But I mean, Bob might want that, but he doesn't want to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, is filthy rich and does not want to do anything with his money. I don't really understand how that works, but it's, he, you can tell just by some of the things that come out. Uh, what actually a guy I went to college with Adam Vaccaro who writes for the Boston globe. Um, continually puts in these freedom of information requests Mm -hmm. to the city of Boston and some of the surrounding cities to try to get evidence of meetings between Kraft sports group and different city officials and plans and, you know, things like that. And they're, they're definitely moving on it. I mean, they're not, they're not telling us they're doing something and then doing nothing. They're definitely kicking the tires. But I think the most recent thing that I heard was that Bob Kraft was looking for a fully publicly financed stadium that will be paid back via ticket tax. Which is, that
0: seems unlikely.
3: It does seem unlikely. I mean, there are places that would be dumb enough to do that. And keep in mind, I would be happy with the stadium however we get it, but I would, I'm a resident of the city of Boston. I don't want the city of Boston footing the bill. Right. I mean, it's,
0: You're a city that literally cities around the world turn to organizers from Boston to figure out how to not get screwed by
3: the Olympics. Right, because we didn't get screwed by the Olympics. (laughs) Exactly, you chose not to get screwed by the Olympics, and they're like, "How do you make that choice?" We became the bid city, and then so many of us were so pissed about it that we became not the bid city. (laughs) Like, it's how can you look at the city of Boston when they do that to the Olympics and say, you know, we want you to pay for it, and it'll be, it'll work out for you, and we'll totally pay you back. I mean, the stories around around the country right now about publicly funded stadiums are basically they're, they're they're a death trap for for taxpayers and the northeast especially is a place where you know those opinions are generally going to come out first you're going to and that's not that's not a knock against any other part of the country it just it seems like you know we're definitely the area of the country that is least likely to pay for your stadium <laughs> i don't care what part of the northeast you're from and it probably stretches down to the mid-atlantic and dc you're not going to get a publicly funded stadium Although DC so, is uh,
0: bucking that a little bit, they not, they are providing. The, half. They're providing. Well, no, they're providing the land for DC United Stadium, which is roughly half the value, and they're also providing ninety percent of the cost for Ted Leonsis's Wizards practice facility slash. Washington Mystics WNBA stadium,
2: and, okay. and they will trip over themselves to bring the Washington professional football team back to the district. But that's right. DC
0: DC might team. be the exception to to that maybe, rule. Maybe the the I, was trying,
3: line, I was trying to be nice. I wasn't. Actually the line stops in no, no, Baltimore. No. Let's say, like North <laughs> Baltimore is where the line is, and north of that. Yeah, so where we're, we're, it's not going to happen up here, right? But I don't understand. It, it's tone deafness to me. I mean, I understand the mm-hmm. negotiating position. Start with what you know. Start with something that is better than what you're expecting to get, what you really want to get, and work your way down for a compromise. But to say that you know you want Boston to fund it or Massachusetts to fund it and you know, use a ticket tax, I mean, he basically looks like he's trying to use the same tactic that he used with the Patriots back in the 90s when he threatened to move them to Providence and then Hartford. And that's not going to work because the city of Boston is going to look at him and say, listen, we would love to have a Revolution Stadium here, but not that much. <laughs> like, Go ahead. And then what's he going to do? Is he going to build it in Providence? That'll be horrible. I'm from Rhode Island. I love Rhode Island. I love Providence. It'd be a beautiful place for a stadium, but no one's going to go. Wait, so, isn't
0: isn't Gillette technically closer to Providence than to Boston?
3: I'd say it's about halfway. Okay. having made that commute from both directions, I'd say it's about halfway. Okay. Um, Gillette's a a, a miserable to get to. It's not even on. Yeah, around, yeah no matter where you are, it's on Route One. Yes.
1: Like,
3: how would you do? Like, why would you do that? But that, that's neither here nor there. Um. <laughs> regardless, it's, it's one of those situations where I feel like the club definitely wants the stadium. There's no doubt in my mind that they want it. But there's a difference between wanting it and being willing to go out and get it. And they're not willing to go out and get it. Not right now. Not yet.
0: Back on the field, Steve. Last question for you. How would you beat the Revs if you were game planning against them? Say you're, you know, you're in Ben Olsen's shoes. What are you keying on? Where are you attacking? Where are you defending? How are you going to beat
3: them? Well, in their defense, you're going to want to create communication issues. You're going to want to pressure Andrew Farrell on the ball because he's good on the ball, but it just seems like sometimes it gets in his own head. And you're going to want to pressure him and Jose Gonzalez into making into not communicating and making errors. That's if you're in the attack, that's what you want to do. You can try to take advantage of Chris Tierney's lack of speed, but honestly, he's too wily for that at this point. He gets it. He knows when he has to stay home. You're just going to take away him as a crosser, which is not a bad thing, but Javon Watson can cross the ball. Um, then you're going to want to key on Lee Win. Beat him up. I mean, it it sucks to say it, but beat him up. He's going to get frustrated, and if the ref—you're basically taking a 50-50 chance that the ref's not going to protect him. So if the ref doesn't protect him, you're golden, because then everything stops. If the ref protects him, you want to key on him and be aware of Diego Fagundes. At that point, that's the best you can do. Because if Lee is getting protection and is feeling it, you're not going to really be able to totally contain him. But keeping, let's say keeping two players, kind of always keying on him, one on him and one just playing off and able to assist when necessary. Is going to make it very difficult for him to operate. But the problem with doing that is you're taking a player, you're taking a player off of somebody else. And if you know if Teal Bumbry is having a good game, then Teal Bumbry is going to kill you. If he's having a bad game, it's like he's not even there. But if he's having a good game, he's going to kill you. It's a guy off of based on that performance off of Charlie's defense with the ball, he's going to score. So. It's it, it really, you're not going to be able to do much if they're feeling it, but they're not always feeling it. And if they're not, then kicking Lee and pressuring that heart of defense into kind of losing their cohesion is the way to do it. Because some defenses will be able to weather a storm. I just don't, I think Andrew and Jose individually are both very good defenders. Just for some reason, without AJ Soares next to one of them, they don't they just lose it sometimes. And I think that that's your best bet. You might get scored on, but if you can score on us enough, you're going to win. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think the, the deal with the revs, like, like you said, if they get going, if they're really having a good game going forward, there is a way to beat them, but it involves just getting into a shootout and hoping to, you know, seeing where the chips fall. Um, yeah. because, because you will get your chances against the revs. Um, and that's fine. I mean, no one complains about watching the New England Revolution, which is a departure from past seasons. Um, but in the, the pre-Heaps era, um, if you watch them play, you're probably going. I mean, them getting a three-three draw on the road is not entirely out of character. It's like,
3: well, I could, I could kind of see that how that would happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It didn't really. I mean, it, it it was entertaining. It was fun, but it honestly didn't really surprise anybody. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of. It's well. They scored three goals and shipped three goals. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I I could see that. That's that, that, that sounds about right.
0: The thing is, that's true of a lot of MLS teams at this point. Oh, this, this season year. looks like
3: it's gonna be so <laughs> wide open, both frustrating and amazing at the same time.
0: Yeah, exactly. A uh, good friend of ours, Kevin McCauley, wrote a story on the first week of the MLS season for com. The Mothership. Go read it if you're listening to it. it's fun and and deserves your eyeballs. Steve, thank you for coming on the show. We, we really appreciate you taking the time. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you?
3: Well, you can find me and, and my much better uh, large and, and dedicated staff at thebentmusket.com, which is also an SB Nation property, where um, you can find me personally at Twitter at st. My last name is confusing. It's s Home Run. So uh, you can find some usings there occasionally, but mostly you're going to see me at the Bent Musket.
0: Sorry. S to home run. I, I enjoy it. I enjoy that. Find us at blackandredunited.com. We're on Twitter. Twilibu- <laughs> We're on Twitter <laughs> at filibuster DCU for the podcast at black and red you for the website. Send your email to filibuster podcast at gmail.com. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Stitcher. We are on SoundCloud. Mostly though, when you're at the bar on Saturday at three in the afternoon, trying to find news channel eight tell a friend about the podcast we'd really appreciate it uh thanking steve and for jason and ben i am adam we will talk to you real soon say goodbye jason goodbye jason